Our scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, you know how far my life is from living out verse 24. You know how unwilling I am at deep levels to lose my life for Jesus' sake. You understand far better than I how tied my heart is to the worth of the world and how inadequate my estimate of my own soul is, let alone the souls of others. And so there is no sense in which I am qualified or adequate to preach this text. None. My adequacy is not in me. It is the adequacy that comes from you. And so now I pray through a clay pot cracked and flawed the surpassing greatness of the power and treasure of Jesus Christ would be set forth not not only for others but for me as well and I pray that you would work today to build up your children and to save the lost I ask in Jesus name We make investment decisions, all kinds of them, uh, financial and otherwise, based on a, our vision of the future. Uh, we, we uh, and sometimes it's, it's an informed, uh, a relatively informed uh, vision of the future. Uh, sometimes it's totally uninformed. But we, the reason we invest money and time, it, it basically, is because we think that the investment will grow in the future, that what the future is going to bring is more. Now, sometimes uh, what happens is when we make those decisions uh, today, we discover uh, that our hopes about the future uh, were unfounded. And uh, sometimes, they're, sometimes they're vindicated and sometimes they're not, but there's no way of avoiding it. Every investment we, decision we make, we make by faith. It is, it is uh, hoping in, and, and seeking assurance for something we can't see and don't know. We stand, all of us stand before a future. When it comes to financial investments or efforts, those kind of things, we stand before a future that we are, if we're honest to admit it, we are almost totally ignorant of and completely impotent before. We just don't own that as much as we should. And we, we just pour ourselves into things that are headed toward the future without hardly ever giving ourselves the gut check we should and say, hey, how ignorant am I really about tomorrow? How impotent am I really about tomorrow? Now, if you watch the stock market, the stock market for all of the social power that it has and, 
and uh, the wealth uh, creation uh, ability that it has. It is, it is something that uh, doesn't always get it right, Let me, to put it mildly. And you've heard the term market correction before. You know what a market correction is? That's a euphemism for market mistake. What happens is that the stock market, which is just a bunch of, the conglomeration of a bunch of hearts of people. That's all that is. It's people. And they're computers. And what happens is, in a market correction, what the market realizes or simply fears is that perhaps some stock or stocks as a whole, it has overvalued. And so suddenly, the market is jolted back into reality, and we say, oh my goodness, I've got to sell that before it goes down any further. And what, what that reveals is that vast amounts of wealth have been invested on the basis of false and mistaken assumptions. And that goes on every day. Vast amounts of wealth have been invested according to false assumptions and mistaken measures of value. And, and there's a bubble that develops, and the bubble is popped at a certain point. And, of course, the irony is that the same market that corrects is the same market that made the mistake of overinflating these stocks to begin with. So why should you really trust it that much? Jesus Christ stands forth from this text, not ignorant of the future and not impotent before the future. He stands as the owner of the future. And he is announcing to us what we know already, that our hearts are like markets. They are constantly in pursuit of value. We are constantly investing ourselves, exchanging ourselves or things that we have or use, trying to get more and and vast amounts of ourselves, our fortunes, by any measure, any index, are invested all the time. We accumulate things. Our hearts go after value and try to accumulate value. And our hearts, Jesus knows, lose value all the time. And Jesus is standing forth from this text and he's saying, I have news for the hearts and the world of men. The hearts of men and the world of men aren't just a market. They're a broken market. They proceed according to false and mistaken measures of value. And I am here to correct that broken market, to show you what really matters. Now, friends, our lives and the decisions we make matter not just within the horizon of our lives, but they matter, according to Jesus here, eternally. And what Jesus is saying is that really all of human history has been just this one, since the Garden of Eden, all of human history has been this one big, massive, globe-encompassing bubble where where false measures and standards of value have been pursued and where things that aren't really treasure have been traded and accumulated. And he's saying that there's going to be a day when that bubble is popped by the mercy of God. And you know where that bubble is popped? It's popped there at Calvary. Because it's at the cross that we are helped by the mercy of God to see what really matters and what the true standards of value and riches actually are. The cross and Jesus' ministry there and from there are God's gift to jolt us back into reality. And that is what Jesus is emphasizing for us in these five verses. 
And so this morning, I want to reflect with you on three measures of true worth that Jesus gives us, that he graciously corrects our broken markets with. Three things that are relevant to each one of us. And we just, we don't have in ourselves the right measure of their value. And Jesus is correcting us mercifully here. The first is the true worth of of people, of each person. The second is the true worth of God. And the third is the true worth of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to reflect with you about from our passage this morning. So let's think first about the true worth of each person and how Jesus emphasizes that for us here. You know, friends... When, when I read these verses, and I've been thinking about them for weeks, what, what kept coming back to me again and again is that none of us takes our lives as seriously as Jesus does. Our problem is not that we take ourselves too seriously. Jesus is saying, you guys don't take yourselves seriously enough. Let me give you two measures from this passage Two measures that Jesus gives us of the true worth of each person, each human life. The first measure is this, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he... Get, now notice, it's a man singular. What will it profit a man if he, singular, gains the whole world and forfeits his Singular life, or what shall a man singular give in return for his singular life? That's just absolutely amazing. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, friends, that each person is worth more than the entire world. Listen to how Jesus is describing the importance of every single human life. This is not of him describing, this is not Jesus describing humanity in general or as a species. No, this is him describing a single human being's importance. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? An individual person's soul is worth more than all the riches and all the fullness and all the abundance of the entire world. We do not think that way. This is Jesus Christ's appraisal, not of people in general, but of each person individually. And you notice how for Jesus, those two questions in verse 26, those are rhetorical questions He's saying the answer is so obvious. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Nothing. Or what will a man give in return for his soul? There's nothing that he, if he had title, if you, if you, friend, if you were the emperor of the earth and you had everything, and you had uncluttered, unencumbered title to everything, every square inch of the earth and every aspect of the earth's fullness were yours and you presented it to God and said, I would like my soul back because I worked so hard to own the whole earth. It's not enough. It's not enough. And if you believed that, your ambitions in life would be affected. For Jesus, these are rhetorical questions. They're totally obvious. He looks at people. He's looking at sinners and saying this. And the tragedy, of course, is that that we're oblivious to what to Jesus is obvious. We're oblivious to this great dignity that God ascribes to human beings. We're oblivious to the importance that God assigns to our lives because we're his image bearers. We let the world's measure of us determine our measure of us. Friends, that is sin. That's not just a mistake, that's sin. Because that's letting someone else's voice other than God tell you who you are. And no one 
in the universe has the right to tell you who you are except your maker and your savior. What Jesus is doing is pressing upon us something absolutely amazing. Friends, your life, Jesus knows what you and I forget all the time and we need to be reminded of, which is that there is an an unbreakable link between humanity and eternity. That you cannot know humanity outside of the context of eternity. That you cannot know what a human being is apart from eternity. If you think, friends, that you were made simply to flourish within the four corners of this temporal life, you're wrong, Jesus is saying. He's saying that you were made for eternity. That the size of your life is far larger than your present environment. The importance of your decisions is far greater than your present environment. How many of you have been to SeaWorld? Okay, I've been to SeaWorld. And I was thinking about Shamu. And the first question that occurred to me, of course, as soon as I thought of Shamu, because I thought, is Shamu a he or is it a Shimu? Is it a Himu or a Shimu? I Googled it. It's been both. It's a little scandalized that there was more than one Shamu. But you've been to SeaWorld, right? This beautiful killer whale swimming in those, in those pools. And we look at it and we think it's, it's cool. And yeah, Shamu can survive there. But you know what? We all know that's not where Shamu was meant to live. I mean, Shamu can survive there, but we know that that is not what, where, that's not the environment that Shamu was made to thrive in. It's not right. And friend, you... You are are made for eternity. You were meant to explore, endure for eternity. You were meant to enjoy eternity. You, the stakes and scale of your life, Jesus is saying, are so much vaster than even our whole world. You can't know your importance apart from knowing that you are were made for eternity. What a blessing we could give to the world if we would tell that truth to the world. So that's the first measure. Each person is worth more than the whole world. And the second measure is this, of the true worth of a human being that Jesus gives us. Notice how Jesus says that every single person is going to be judged by Jesus Christ. Verse 27. Look at verse 27 with me. For the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now that, I know at first blush, doesn't sound like a measure of the worth of each person, but it is. Notice that Jesus says he is going to come back in triumph. He's referring to his second coming. He's going to come back, and when he does, he is going to be the judge of every single person, and each person is going to be evaluated and judged. Each person's life is going to be scrutinized by the glorious Son of Man. Friends, do you see what that means? If you're going to be judged by the glorious Son of Man personally and comprehensively, then the least we can say about that is that your life matters. Why else would he bother? Friend, not only the future belongs to Jesus Christ, but your future belongs to Jesus Christ. To be inspected by God, to be evaluated by God, means that our lives are far more consequential and significant than we dare to dream in our wildest imagination. Every single person who has ever lived is going to be summoned 
before the throne of Jesus Christ and on the terms of their own life according to what he or she has done, they will be evaluated. Now, friends, if you're not a Christian, what possible hope do you have right now of withstanding that scrutiny? You have none. Jesus is saying, I know the future. I am not powerless before the future. I own that future. And so I urge you to invest yourself accordingly. Friends, it's never God. It's never Jesus Christ. It's never the Bible that teaches a small view of men. It is only men who teach a small view of men. God didn't come up with the theory of evolution. Men did. God didn't come up with the Big Bang so that everyone believes they're a big accident or a little accident out of the big accident. Men came up with that. You know what God said? Let us make man in our image. Let me take the dust that is very good and let me breathe my life into it. Let me make this being for eternity. Let me invest him and her with moral dignity and moral responsibility. Let me entrust meaningful work to them. Let me give them the highest honor anyone in the universe can possess outside the Trinity, being my image bearers. No, it's not God who has a small view of men. It is men who have a small view of men. And the answer is really simple. The lower your dignity the lower your accountability and the lower your responsibility. See, I think this is Romans 1 being worked out. When you, because man is made in the image of God, you cannot hold on to the dignity of man when you downgrade the dignity of God. That's a law you can't break. So the lower your view of God, necessarily the lower your view of man. That's the way the universe works. And if you think that's not right, read the newspaper. This is the most obvious feature of our culture to me. It just jumps out. What a low view of people our culture propagates. And that's not God's. See, God invests us with incredible accountability. And so, and he does that because we have great responsibility. And because we are accountable, Jesus is saying, and because we're accountable because we've been invested with responsibility, that necessarily means that we've been made with just a, a vast dignity. Now, friends, I want you to know this as well from our text. Some of you have... Uh, have suffered greatly because of bad things that other people have done to you. And I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 27. Some of you define yourselves in terms of the bad things that other people have done to you. And that makes me sad. I'm sorry. But I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Friends, it may be that you have suffered very badly and unjustly at the hands of someone else, but I need you to look very carefully at the gravity of what Jesus is saying in verse 27. He is saying that you are going to be judged not according to what has been done to you, but with what you, ha- what you have done with what has been done to you. Now, you have Jesus' assurance that he is going to judge 
those who perpetrated bad acts against you or upon you. He has that. He has that. He has that. And you know that he has it, and he's not going to drop it because he didn't let go of you at the cross. So, friends, it is time to take that part of your heart and to entrust it again to Jesus Christ and to not use it as cover because it is going to be what you have done that Jesus is going to measure. Let's think next about our second point, the worth of God. The true worth of God. You know, we've built the world from our hearts. And the world we live in does not tell the truth about the true worth of God, does it? The world that men have built and are still building tells the story of our hearts. And when you look at the world that we've built, it's not full of a true measure of God's worth. You can't look to the world to say, to tell you how, how much is God really worth. The world will not give you the right answer. The world thinks the world is more beautiful than God. The world thinks, the world thinks that it's more righteous than God. The world thinks that it's more loving than God, doesn't it? Look at how highly Jesus prizes his Father's worth in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. When he comes back, Jesus is saying he's going to come in the glory of his Father. Now this was the part of the text that I was totally unprepared for. Uh, I was ambushed by this part of the text. This broke on me like a tsunami. And it just stuns me. Because what Jesus is describing in verse 27 is his triumphant second coming, right? When he will return, Hebrews 9.28 says, without reference to sin, his glory will not be veiled anymore. He'll be vindicated. And all the tribes of the earth will see him whom they have pierced and they will mourn over him. He will come with a sword out of his mouth riding on his triumphant steed. He will be recognized as the Savior of the world. Every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will judge all the living and the dead. The books will be opened. The dead will be brought back up and they will stand before him and give him an account for their lives. It is Jesus Christ describing the apex, the zenith, the pinnacle, the summit of his glory. And when he describes the pinnacle, the summit of his glory, notice how he does it. The thing that fills his imagination, the thing that thrills his heart is that he will do all of that in the glory of his Father. What what exhilarates him is the prospect of at last bringing to show all the earth without any filter, undiminished, uncompromised, unveiled the full glory of his Father, that the glory that Jesus will wear in his greatest moment at the height of his magnificence is the glory of his Father. And the reason that moved me so much is because it opened up for me how low my view of my own sin and the glory of God is. Because what is the definition of sin? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And Jesus, when he's at the height of his glory, what is the definition? What is Jesus' image of the very height and triumph of his own glory? It's that he is the means, the way of displaying his Father's glory. Not his own glory, but his Father's glory. Like the writer to the Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the effulgence of the glory of God that Jesus is the glory of God. Friends, we need to learn the value of God from Jesus here. And that means that we need to think very carefully about sin. The way that Jesus teaches us the glory of his Father here. What Jesus is showing us is that the one who knows the Father most truly knows the true worth of God. And so, friends, when Paul says in Romans 1.23, of all people, that they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, that is a much greater offense than we typically recognize. Notice how the Bible defines sin, friends. The depth of our iniquity is measured by the height of God's dignity. And Jesus is telling us here that that God in his glory, if his glory is that great, friends, there is no way that you and I are ever in a position to be able to adequately compensate God for our breaches and offenses against that glory. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is saying to us that God's true worth is so great that there is nothing that you or I could ever produce out of our lives or that we could ever acquire or manufacture, no obedience we could ever render to him, no reformation we could ever accomplish in our own lives that would ever be adequate to compensate the eternal, immortal God for the offenses of our sins as creatures, finite creatures, against his glory and majesty. So that's why he says what he says in verse 26. Let's say you have the whole world. It's not enough. It's not enough. And so what that means is your answer, friends, my answer must come not from within us, but from outside of us. It must come to us. And there's only one possible person who could bring that answer for our sin to us. It is the God against whom we have sinned. That is the heart of Christianity. That is the good news of Christianity. You and I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of that immortal God. And, the, and part of the glory of that immortal God is that he pours his mercy out, not just in the form of some abstract commodity, but in the concrete, incarnate person of his Son to rescue us. And that brings us to our final point, which is the true worth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, friends, gives us two measures of his worth, his cross and our cross. Or really, his cross and our crosses. And I'll explain that in a minute. First, I want you to think about, with me about Jesus' cross. And here uh, we are at the very heart of Christianity. And you know what? You know you, you haven't reached the heart of Christianity until it looks like insanity. If it makes sense to you, <laughs> you probably haven't gotten to the heart of the gospel. Because the same cross that the world and men used to declare... Think, just think about this cross for a minute. The world was saying something when it crucified Jesus. Men were saying something when they crucified Jesus. And what they were saying about Jesus was that he was utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. But the wonder of the gospel is that it is God who had 
the last word at the cross, who was really the narrator of the cross. And the same cross that men used to declare the utter worthlessness of Jesus Christ was the cross that Jesus used to demonstrate his infinite infinite worth. Friends, have you ever thought about it? The cross shows us that never, 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 never has the world had an adversary like Jesus Christ. We don't often think about it this way, but we should. That when Jesus went to the cross, he was opposing the world. He was opposing the world. He was against what the world had done. He was against at the cross what the hearts of men had done. He was against the God-belittling sins enthroned in the hearts of men. He was against and a violent opponent of all that men had done to themselves and to one another and to the glory of God through their sin. And he went to the cross as the adversary of the world and the adversary of our sin. And guess what? He had truth on his side. And he had righteousness on his side. And he had holiness on his side. And he had goodness on his side. And he had purity on his side. And he had power on his side. Never, ever has the world had an opponent like Jesus Christ at the cross. Friends, the cross represents God's judgment on what the world and men have made of themselves when they rebelled against him. And it is not a positive judgment. The cross is God's evaluation of our God-belittling lives. And God does not think that our God-belittling sins are a little thing. Because nothing less than the incarnate death substitutionary death of Jesus Christ was necessary in order to answer the rightful claims of God's justice against our sin. Friends, you want to measure the importance of your life. Know this, that in order for even one of your sins against that eternal God to be justly forgiven, nothing less than the incarnation of a second person of the Trinity and a life in human form as a man in obedience to the law of God culminating in a substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross and his resurrection thereafter was required. That is how important and consequential your life is because of how important and consequential the glory of God is. And the cross shows us that Jesus was acting against our sins, that there is no stone, no molecule, no particle of our iniquity that God in his justice intends to leave unturned at the last day. But in the mercy of God, we have been given a preview of God's justice so that a period of amnesty now hangs over all of history. And there's an opportunity God calls us by his spirit in the gospel to come in and take shelter in Jesus Christ. Because if you're holding out from Jesus this morning in the hope that you're going to get your life better, that you're going to repair uh, the breaches that you have made, that somehow your obedience going forward is going to outweigh your obedience, your disobedience before. Friends, it's not going to work because if you had the whole world and gave it to God with a big red bow on it, it's not enough. There's only one who's enough. See, wonder of wonders, at the very same time that Jesus goes to the cross to oppose our sin, he also goes there. And this is, this, is, this is the gospel, right? He goes there not just as our adversary, but he goes there as our advocate. 
right? Never has the world winning. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just going there as the adversary of the world. He's going there as the world's advocate. He's going for us to the cross. Never has the world had a friend like Jesus Christ. Never have you had a friend like Jesus Christ. No one has greater love than this, but that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what he was doing at the cross. You've never had a friend like that. You've never had a friend who showed you more patience. You've never had a a protector like Jesus Christ. The world has never had a defender like Jesus Christ going all the way to the cross in order to stand between the world and its sin and the holiness and justice of God. Who else, I ask you, friends, look at that cross and I ask you, who else in your life has been a friend like that to you? Who else in your life has invested himself for you in the way that Jesus Christ invested himself at the cross for you as your advocate? Who else has risen up unbidden by you in your defense to be a shield around you like Jesus Christ? Who has been a champion for your cause like Jesus Christ? The answer this passage gives to all those questions is a single answer. No one. No one has ever been an advocate for you like Jesus Christ. No one has ever addressed himself to your deepest and most urgent need like Jesus Christ has. And I guarantee you that you will never meet anyone going forth from here who will exceed him in any of those ways. You need to care more than you do, and so do I, about the opposition of Jesus Christ to your sin. And you need to care far more than you do, and so do I, about the advocacy of Jesus Christ for sinners. And when you get both of those, guess what's going to happen? You are going to yield to him. And you're going to keep yielding. Because that's that's where this leads. It leads to verse 24. Our crosses. Do you see? Jesus had, we've seen this over the last four or five weeks, that Jesus explains that he's going to build his church on the basis of his death. Right? He's going to suffer death. And that's the foundation of his church, is his sacrificial death. And now, and now the implication, verse 24, is the implication of that. Okay, what's the effect of Jesus' death as, as both our, the adversary against our sin and our advocate for us? Well, the effect of that is that we then follow him as he went forward for us, and it leads to our crosses. If anyone, then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. His cross begets our cross. Just as there is no such thing as a crossless Christ for Jesus, there is no such thing by definition as a crossless Christian. And that is not a safe metaphor. It's not a tame metaphor. It's not a domesticated metaphor. Jesus is describing discipleship in terms of a self-denial that has no limits. Do you see that? And who among us is adequate for that? A self-denial without limits. But again, friends, it is so critical to see to read verse 24 in context, Jesus' cross comes first. And apart from Jesus' cross, you are not going to be willing to deny yourself. But when you look at what he denied himself for you, then your heart is changed. It's changed. You have to keep his cross before you. Friend, Jesus Christ wants all of you. There is a cost 
to following Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no way around it. And it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything that you are. There is nothing that you have. There's nothing that you had. There's nothing that you will have. There's nothing that you are. There's nothing that you were. There's nothing that you will be that is not the rightful property of Jesus Christ. He purchased it by his death, shedding his blood for you at his cross. And now in verses 24, Through 28, he is laying his rightful claim to it. He did not come to fit himself into our story. He came to make us fit for his, and he is no one's hobby. There is a cost. That cost extends to your dreams. That cost extends to your money. It extends to your sexuality. It extends to your ambitions. It extends to your failures, your past, your present, your time, your abilities, all your relationships. Every single one of them is the property of Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters. And my non-Christian friends, you need to hear what this text says. Following Jesus Christ is costly. He is not content to be our hobby. You have to decide, friend, and I have to decide, and we have to keep deciding. With each step we follow him with, we have to keep denying ourselves. We have to decide, am I going to yield to Jesus what is rightfully his? When he calls me to deny myself, what he is calling me to do is to stop denying him his royal rights over everything that I think of as me and mine. He is that great. And he knows his own true worth. And he's telling it to us. I want you to see, friends, as we close, I want you to see two things about this, how personal this is and how beautiful it is. Here's what I mean by personal. Notice what Jesus says. Again, verse 24 is in the singular. If anyone, that's singular, would come after me, let him, singular, deny himself, singular, and take up his, singular, cross and follow me. Now, that's really important for a couple reasons. Number one, what it emphasizes is that this call is issued by Jesus Christ to every single one of his disciples. So there is no Christian who is exempt from that call. 100% of his disciples. Number one, 100% of his disciples. Number two, I want you to notice that though it's a, hundred, it's a call issued to 100% of his disciples, notice that it is not one size fits all. Each person is to take up, notice, his cross. That means that that call is issued by Jesus Christ into the unique settings and circumstances of each one of our lives. Now, I know because of the hour, you want me to just finish by telling you what it's going to mean for you to deny yourself. And I am very happy to disappoint you because there are only, there, there's, there's really, I don't know what it means for you to deny yourself concretely. But I know that Jesus knows. And the question is, are you abiding closely enough with this glorious king who is your advocate to know and to be able to recognize his voice and the leading of his spirit? Are your roots buried deeply enough in his word? And are you listening carefully enough to him, my friends, so that you are alert? There's an open channel. He is current with you and you are current with him so that there is a living relationship in which you are hearing from him specifically speaking into your situation in life so that if there was some new way of denying yourself that he was laying upon you, that you would recognize his voice. Is your relationship with Jesus like that? If it's not, it is not because he doesn't want it to be. Friends, I don't know what denying yourself 
means to you other than to say this. It will mean that you are moved and compelled by the love of Christ out of whatever is your comfort zone into what you define as your discomfort zone. And you know what? I am very content to entrust the responsibility for discerning the boundaries between those two zones to you before God. Friends, think about how beautiful this is and how the self-denying without any limits, the following of Jesus even at the willingness uh, of losing our lives. Think about how, if you think about history as a large canvas, how the, the life of his people across the span of history uh, demonstrates and displays his beauty. Think about the diversity of all these different people, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, wise and foolish, uh, PhDs and uh, the uneducated, people in North America, people in South America, people in Asia, people in the first century, people in the 21st century, all these people, Jesus being so lovely, so beautiful, his work being so compelling that the only thing in history that has really drawn people together, that has really forged a unity between people is the excellence of Jesus Christ. There are stories in this church, in this little church that need to be put on display because they are stories that display the beauty of Jesus Christ. Friends, the one who holds the future has come to declare what will matter in the future and what will not. And he urges every single one of us today to invest ourselves toward that future, his future. Let's pray. Lord, What a friend we have in Jesus Christ. What a friend for sinners. What an advocate. What a champion. What a defender. What an advocate you are for us. A rescuer. A champion. We bless you and pray that our lives would tell the truth about you. As we go forth from here, we pray in your name. Amen.